<laughs> Happy Sunday. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good day to y'all. This is uh, PFG Live. And the reason I came in laughing is uh, Kevin Blodgett put a comment in the in the uh, chat. He said, "Greetings, fellow mechanically inclined people." <laughs> anyway, welcome everybody. It's uh, a cool, meaning like really cool Sunday. It's very nice uh, here in New Hampshire. Current temperature is seventy-five degrees. Seventy. Five degrees in southern New Hampshire. Uh, we're interested to hear your weather reports briefly as we get underway. It was so nice that I had both shop doors open uh, and I was cleaning and sweeping and stuff and, and the warm air was wafting in. It was glorious. It wasn't snowing is what I'm trying to say. So how is everybody? I'll say good morning to, uh, I missed a few people in there. Metrological Apparatus was number one this morning. Congratulations. Uh, Silo's Garage, nice to see you. Uh, who else is here? Of course, Kevin Blodgett is here. And uh, yeah, welcome, guys. So uh, as promised, we have a special, uh, a special show today in that uh, we're going to be talking about a piece of equipment that two out of the three of us that are going to be on your screen have, and I'm the one that doesn't. So it'll be a lot of fun. Mr. Simpson, welcome aboard. 70 degrees and intermittent showers near Detroit. I've been told my showers are a little intermittent too by my wife. Welcome aboard. Let's see how the uh, technical stuff looks. It looks like seven live viewers at the moment. That will ramp up. And everything looks healthy. So... Uh, I've been working on a project that we're going to talk a little bit about today, I hope. If you've been following on uh, Instagram, I've been making these pins out of S7 tool steel. See if I can show you that. And this pin is the basis for uh, a device. Kevin Blodger reports 60 degrees, partly cloudy in Oregon. Partly cloudy in Oregon. That's shocking. Dat Tutti, the Tutti, I don't know how to pronounce it, is 18 degrees Celsius or centigrade, depending on which side of the street you're on, and cloudy in southwest Germany. Welcome aboard, sir. And CJ Stevens says good afternoon, which is technically correct. So these pins, which I'm seeking some advice and counsel on from the present company, uh, are actually going to turn into something that looks like like that, which is the firing pin for a Benelli Olympic standard pistol. And the reason we're making them is that, uh, as you may or may not know, I was on the MIT pistol team, and which was a some serious business, and they've been cracking them and we don't know why. So uh, we're trying to solve that problem. Mr. C.J. Stevens reports 70 degrees and partly cloudy in East Tennessee. As far east as you can get, I bet. So first time with S7 tool steel. Did the proper heat treating and they came out great. So the next step is all grinding. 
and uh, I'm a little nervous, but I have enough enough stock, and we'll see where that goes. So, um, let's get underway. I'm going to introduce you to our guests today, and uh, have them tell you a little bit about where they're at, and then uh, we'll get we'll get going. So please welcome uh, Adam Demuth and Aaron Walla. So let's see, uh, Aaron, why don't you lead it off, tell your story, uh, and and why you're here today. Well, I'm uh, I'm a tool maker. I'm a mold maker. I I'm on the show today, I think, because I just bought a new used Parker Majestic surface grinder. And I was on the show before talking about what I was looking for in a grinder. And uh, I really found uh, the dream setup. So awesome. Found it and right after I finished finished my shop enough to start putting stuff in it. And tell everybody where you are. I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Outstanding. And uh, Adam Demuth, no stranger to these uh, video pixels. Tell everybody about yourself and why you are connected to this conversation. Uh, I'm a dye maker in Eastern Ohio, and I own two Parkers, and I, don't know, I get into some unusual stuff with them. And I've, from a career standpoint, used a lot of different Parkers, and it's just—I don't know if it's the best grinder. It's the one I know the most, though, and so it's what I go to when I need a grinding solution. And you're in Ohio, mm-hmm. so. Now, Parker is an American company, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that machine is built uh, in the U.S. of A. down the street, right? Pittsburgh, just uh, north of uh, Pittsburgh, actually. Uh, used to be made in Detroit, and the owner of Parker Majestic was kind of looking to get out of the game and retire, and he went to his biggest purchaser of machines, which was Penn United Technologies, and they they own many dozens, like if not a hundred of various types of Parkers and asked them if they'd be interested in purchasing the company. Uh, because at that time, some of the first CNC Parkers to ever get built weren't actually built by Parker. They were built by Penn United Technologies. They'd done their own retrofits way back in the eighties. Um, so they were way ahead of the curb, even than the manufacturer when it came to CNC integration. And so they agreed to purchase it, and some of the machine builders moved from Detroit to Pittsburgh, and that's now where the companies ran from. Pretty cool. So that's it's uh, a little closer to my neck of the woods in Pennsylvania. Um, and so, Aaron, tell the story of how you ended up finding this thing. Okay. Well, for starters, um, I have a Herrig 612, and it's a good and accurate grinder but it's it's not exactly everything that that i wanted and um so i've been on the hunt at work i i use um mitsui's historically although right now i'm at a place where we have chevaliers and uh, i fell in love with the mitsui grinders and was kind of looking looking for a mitsui manual um but i knew that i really wanted to get it into a cnc grinder but i never really saw them for sale um so i kept digging kept looking holding out for what i wanted which is a very good condition um 
sort of CNC capable grinder, although I've been looking at manuals too. And I found this one in a local auction. It was uh, it was owned by a professional instrument company. And so of course, um, I called Cyrus and I was like, hey, what do you know about this grinder? <laughs> and he, he had actually used it during his internship there. And cool. uh, I went to Pico and had a look at it and it looked like it was in really great shape, although there was no power to it. So I couldn't test anything. But uh, in the end, I was able to uh, snatch it up in the auction. It didn't draw nearly as much attention as I thought it would. So that machine has a uh, what's the what's the proper name of that control? It's a so it's an Allen Bradley control. It was uh, retrofitted. the The surface grinder was built in 1966, and in 2006, Pico sent that grinder back to have it retrofitted so they put the allen bradley control on it it's got uh it's got kind of the basic can cycles that you'd come to expect i like the way the control works better than say like the okamoto at least so far from reading the manual right i haven't run the grinder yet but so so full disclosure like full disclosure i i have the okamoto right i i have the uh i meant the okamoto automatic Oh, okay. So not the CNC. This, no, this is a little bit. It's, it's a little bit more like a tricked out automatic than a full CNC surface grinder. But actually, you know who has essentially that control on the Okamoto is uh, Grimsmo. He bought the Okamoto with not the Fanuc control with their. You know, is it an Omron controller? Pretty sure. Yeah, something like that. But it, but that's in the same class as what you're talking about. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, and my look at that. My Okamoto, if you run it in what they call um, semi-automatic mode, it behaves like that. So it basically, if you're used to that kind of grinder, you can walk up to the to the Okamoto and just and run it, and and everything feels comfortable. It's only when you get into the other modes that it starts getting getting kind of crazy so uh you just got it it just came in this week have you fired it up i haven't i uh, just had my electrician over and uh, we're deciding on how to get the thing wired up and i think what we're going to go with is i'm just going to get a small the smallest phase perfect phase converter and i'm going to run just that machine off of it although it's capable of running two two manual or semi-automatic grinders. I don't know if it would run, you know, a grinder like what Adam has or what you have. I don't know what kind of power draw those have, but basically just something small that lets me get started. Eventually I plan on getting more three-phase equipment and I had planned on getting a larger outdoor unit to power everything, but it, it'll be a while before I can get that thing up so i didn't want to wait that one to have the grinder up i've got work i can be doing on it now so so adam what what's your uh three phase solution so i am taking my 240 single phase doubling it up to 480 uh luckily my 240 comes in a little hot so the not quite double actually drops it right to about perfectly 480 and then it goes into a 480 phase perfect and creates three phase. So, so I remember this now. It's all coming back to me. Uh, 
you are actually running 483 phase in your shop. Yeah, I also have 243 phase. Um, <laughs> okay. I I saw value in having some redundancy, not everything in my shop relying on one phase converter. Yeah. Um, because those do go down. Um, yep. And so uh, that's just kind of the, the path I took. And, and I'm running off of my, in my whole shop, there are two phase perfect, 10 horsepower converters, one on the on each far end. One runs the Sharp uh, VMC and one runs the uh, Okamoto. Um, one I bought brand new and the other one I bought used for a song and for doing a little bit of electrical work for a guy. But they're, they're serial numbers away. So yeah. the, the, the phase perfect that you're looking at, Aaron, um, is that a brand new unit in the white box? Yeah, I mean that's all I've looked at so far. Um, looks like it's about a thousand bucks. No, I'm open to I'm open to suggestions. That's what, what I just said about having some redundancy built in. I think that's that's a great idea. Um, what power is that rated for? The the grinder. No, the uh, the the phase perfect that you're looking at. Oh, it it takes it needs thirty amps in and it puts out like nineteen. So that's help me on horsepower here, because my oh, it's a I think it's a five horsepower, maybe it's a three horsepower. That's a that's an interesting size. I think the ten the ten horse was the smallest that they made back then. Okay. But I could so my phase perfect experience has been immaculate, like turn on work, and it's been that for fifteen years. Um. What what converter are you running, uh, Adam? Two phase perfects. So awesome. Now what's interesting is talking to a lot of my electrical engineering friends, they associate them with static phase converters. And I said, well, they're digital, and I can't necessarily, as a meathead, explain the difference, but I do know there is a difference. Um, but yeah, they all tried to push me down the rotary path for my application, but everything I read about phase perfects and using them in machine shops it seemed like it was the way to go um just none of my in electrical engineer friends had any experience with them well if i could if i could push up my electrical engineering glasses on my nose here and and weigh in uh i looked at the schematic for that um converter and basically the the digital part of it is that they're synthesizing the third phase um I may be getting this wrong, but the third leg is being synthesized, and uh, it's well done. I mean, I looked at the schematics. It's been a, it's been too long, actually. We should probably take another look at it, but uh, they're doing a good job. I I had one problem very early on with the Phase Perfect in that it was kicking out when I was going from high RPM, uh, and and basically stopping the spindle from high RPM. And what happened was the phase perfect was was interpreting some of the back uh, EMF as as spikes, as noise, as bad things happening, and it was shutting down. And that happened a couple of times. And I called those guys up, and they were very helpful. And they said, "Yeah, we have a sense circuit for that sort of stuff. And if you go to this dip switch on the board, you know, dip switch number three, and just turn it off, that whole thing will go away." And it did. And that was 15 years ago. Um, so it, it, 
I think it's a great choice. And I'm now I'm interested to see what this smaller phase perfect looks like. So all, all so, of that oh, to say, all, all of that to say, I think it's a great choice. I pulled up the information and uh, the five horsepower one is, is 30 amps in ninth and out. But the three horsepower, it only has 20 amps in. And um, I've already, I've already wired that spot uh, with a 20 amp breaker. So it might be the perfect, perfect spot to put this. Otherwise I've got to run another 30 amp. Some more numbers time wire to that position. I, I didn't do the best job of planning out my electrical um, situation. I, I kind of just stuck uh, 240 outlets all over the place thinking that I'd be covered. But in reality, it was just a waste of wire because it's not really where I need it. And I need to, you know, get a phase, a phase converter in line um, for those spots. So I'm just going to end up running conduit like I can see on Adam's wall. And yeah, we also have conduit. Um, all of the shop wiring is is conduit. Yeah, uh, I think that's a more sensible way, but I wanted it to be clean and look clean. Inspired well, by Adam, actually. I love how clean his shop looks. <laughs> oh, no, uh, thanks. <laughs> so, uh, do you have a you have a, a electrician with a sense of humor? <laughs> well, I would say no. <laughs> <laughs> Is he a little grumpy? You know, my requests aren't always the simplest, so yeah, there could be some grumpiness. So but the guy that talk. was out here today, he's really. He, I, he's I just had I just had my electrician in last week. Uh, after waiting for a while, I know nobody has that experience having to wait a while, uh, but he's he's pretty cool, dude, and he put in the charger circuit for the electric truck, and we ran. It was like its own hundred amp home run back to the main panel. And we did all conduit, all number three wire. Uh, so to me, it was a big deal, but once he started, it was like, it was like a, a blur and, uh, and he got it done. So that was pr pretty cool. Kevin asks a question. Is there so, any issue? Is there any issue with the grinder using 110 volt accessories and needing power separate from the three phase? So on the back of my CNC Parker are M code activated 110 volt plugs. Oh, that's awesome. So I can turn on a spin fixture at the start of a cycle. Um, because sometimes on CNC grinders, you forget to turn on the spin fixture. No. <laughs> um, and so just to be able to have the machine kick it on when it needs, uh, and you could also use it for spin dressers. Um, so and uh the that's uh if you have a 110 volt dust extractor it can fire that as well um so that's pretty cool i have that exact problem right now where i, like I have that. i give it i have to create three phase give it to the machine which creates single phase <laughs> oh, <laughs> on the okamoto is even worse i have two i have 220 i make 223 phase that goes into a transformer to make 200 three-phase. That goes into the Okamoto, which, if you look really carefully, has a 115-volt transformer to feed the, the uh, magnetic chuck circuit, which then makes DC to drive the magnetic chuck. So 
somebody's making a lot of money. Um, but I also want to get a, uh, a relay f- set up and I know it's totally doable. I just have to set a, set a couple hours aside, uh, so that the, um, fume, uh, extractor, the, the mist extractor turns on anytime the coolant pump is on. If I could do that, that will be a major quality, quality of life improvement, uh, for me. Uh, a couple of people checked in here. I uh, just want to acknowledge them. Metrological Apparatus, who, by the way, was number one in the chat today, but was late with their weather report, said it is standard temperature of 20 degrees Celsius in France. Thank you. And uh, K. Bonk just woke up and is drinking a Red Bull, and he reports it's 75 degrees and mostly sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> so... You, 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 uh, Adam, you gave us the history of this machine. It's pretty cool. I love the fact that it's uh, American-made. Uh, I was not familiar with it when I started my my journey. But is there anything fundamentally different that they any approaches that they take that are fundamentally different in the grinder? Um, compared to a lot of like tool room class surface grinders, I think they're very generous with the amount of head travel elevation wise. So you can get really tall work pieces on the chuck under the wheel. Um, and a lot of my tool room work has overlapped with machine building. So yeah, we're making punches and die components, but we're also making like a base for a robot to sit on. And so we needed to be able to build somewhat precise, larger stuff. And I felt like that was always a lot easier on this style machine than some other tool machines. Um, so that's what always drew me to them is I, it's just a lot of, a lot of headroom and kind of a versatile layout. That, that appeals to me too, because I, I often have to, you know, grind long pins or uh, long parts that have angles on them. And as soon as you start stacking, you know, sign chucks and things, you, you lose a lot of Z room right away. So that's why when I was searching for a grinder, I was limiting my search to uh, Parker Majestic Mitsui. Mitsui has a 612 grinder that's got an extent, an extended Z height too, which is pretty nice. I've used every bit of it in the past and it's nice to have when you need it. Uh, so, I noticed on both of your machines, well, actually more on Adam's machine, that there's no real uh, enclosure uh, going on there. Uh, are you ever... And he's wrong. There is an enclosure. Are you running uh, coolant on yours? The CNC one, yeah. Um, okay. Some of the materials I grind on it need coolant. So okay. the manual one, it's just dust extraction. And what about you, Aaron? I I use it intermittently. It depends on what I'm doing. I like to have it. Um, so I, I do plan to set it up on my manual grinder once I get it moved over here. But, um, you know, a lot of times you, you lose a lot of time when you're using coolant because you have to do a lot more cleanup between parts. And so if you kind of know how to manage the heat, you can avoid you can avoid using that for a lot of things. Now, with some of the harder tool steels, 
you know, it, it can be problematic. But a lot of times it just depends on what you're doing. If you rough stuff and then finish it in a separate cycle, you can kind of get rid of most of your heat problems and, and grind dry ice all the time. And I, of course, am in the totally opposite camp. It's like if I could be grinding in a swimming pool, I'd prefer that. Yeah. Uh, but it's a different it's it's a different animal. And yeah, it's you need a whole separate set of infrastructure to deal with coolant. Um, when I started with the 612, the the um, mist, uh, the Noga mist, Noga is that what it's called? Mini cool, the Noga mini cool mist. Uh, uh, cool coolant schnozzle thing spitter <laughs> was was the was the thing and that's actually pretty useful i guess in some situations is that uh, uh I, I see adam saying nah not so much it's all the downsides of coolant without the total solution like it's still the same amount of mess same amount of time between parts cleaning the chuck but it's not as effective as coolant hmm um, that was always kind of my takeaway, but, uh, I know a lot of people use cold air guns, but I think that creates the opposite problem. <laughs> you get your part too cold. But, too cold and it's so messy and noisy. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it uses a lot of air. Yeah. Usually the shops where you see that they don't have the air compressor in the building and don't notice how much it's running. <laughs> yeah. And they don't pay for the electric. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I've never tried one. One um, issue that. I run into a lot with cord is that I never feel like I get it exactly where I want it when I'm grinding. You know, you can get the part wet, you can, you know, but you, you can, it's, it's really hard to get it so that your coolant's right at, at the contact point between the wheel and the part. And what I want to do with this one is I want to run multiple coolant lines. I want to have your standard, you know, wheel coolant that everybody's got. But I want to set up a separate smaller line that I can connect with just a, a Noga base so I can just I can position it on the magnet and put it put the coolant exactly where I want. So uh, an example would be like um, sometimes with pin grinding or uh, rotary grinding, you know, you're not getting it where you want with the with the one connected to the wheel. So if I could just position it where it stays on, I think that would that would have a great benefit. It, it it's almost as if the market there's a market for one that kind of focuses focuses the coolant stream at a point maybe with some vector from the side you know focus maybe there's one if you go to nas.gg noz.gg you might find one that's the commercial uh yeah i and actually to be honest i the the nas I designed it to be focused on a point, right? But but the reality is 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 it it hits the side of the wheel, which is desirable, and it hits the bottom where the part is, and I find that it does it does multiple multiple good things that I didn't expect. End of commercial. Well, I'll have to try one. But, uh, well, I have a, I have a bunch of tips in my box because there doesn't seem to be a one fit one solution for everything, so I just change them out as needed. All right. Inbound, <laughs> it's coming. Um, do, do you have uh, a Nas, Adam? I have the prototypes. That's right. You were my you were my first guinea pig. I mean, tester. Uh, 
All right, we'll get you a Nas. Uh, pretty cool, um, so to speak. So what was the most surprising thing about about the Parker Majestic grinder and, and then secondarily of its controller? Um, and I don't even know if you've had a chance to run it, uh, Aaron. Am, am I correct? Yeah, I, I haven't had a chance to run it. I've, I've poured over the manual. I'll say one thing that caught me by surprise is when I um, was trying to lift the spindle off the four by four block that it was secured to, it felt like the spindle wasn't moving at all. And I'm cranking the handle and cranking the handle. And then I looked down to it and I realized that the, the Z feed wheel is 10 thousandths per revolution. <laughs> and, wow. And I, I didn't know that. Um, and that explains why there's power feed on the on the Z axis on those machines. But uh, I think that's pretty cool. I'm impressed by by how much meat there is to it. There's there's really a lot of cast iron. It's a, a heavy machine. If you put it next to my Herrig, um, it would definitely look like it's you know bigger, buffer brother. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to to running it. But Adams definitely got the you know the more hands-on experience with it so what's the most surprising thing about that grinder compared to other grinders on the market besides you talked about the z height um what else distinguishes the uh, parker majestic um i think the cnc conversational elements are very much so geared towards people that have ran grinders manually uh kind of speaks the lingo mm. in our world so to speak um and uh i i just felt like i wasn't kind of trying to search for their understanding or what they were trying to say with uh the way they describe things it just it all made sense to me because um there was just a lot of institutional operation knowledge of grinding die components and so when they they mapped out how they want these can cycles to work uh, you know, they went to the right people in their their company and and planned things accordingly. Um, and then the other nice thing is there's just a lot of uh, versatility. They didn't just do it the way they thought it should be done. They they gave everybody who runs grinders options. I mean, there's half a dozen different dressing cycles. Uh, you know, if you're doing super abrasives, you can do it several different ways. And um, so I, I thought that was pretty pretty well laid out. I'll tell you one thing you are not fighting that I have to fight is the translation. That was my other concern. Uh, I really didn't want a Fanuc Rand machine, and that kind of wipes out both Okamoto and Amada. Um, so, but. Uh, I spent a lot of time, an unfortunate amount of time, with the what do you really mean question. Like, I think I showed it recently, uh, dressing the wheel. You give it parameters, and then there's a button that says "transduck." <laughs> it's like, okay, I think you mean transduce, but you really mean translate to G code, and it's just, of course, once you once you slog through it, you know, oh yeah, push that button. But when you're trying to like literally communicate with the control on on that machine, it's like, what are they trying to say? So, I'm a little jealous about the fact that 
American is used in the in the control. Not that I'm adverse to other things, but uh, yeah, by yeah. by r- ruling out Fanic, I was left with either going with a, a Jung uh, with their Siemens control, um, but that was a big jump in price. Or you get into the world of PC based controls, and that wasn't uh, an avenue I was willing to go down. Um, I've just never seen longevity in PC based controls. You know, usually they have like an XP machine on life support just to keep some obscure piece of equipment running. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to deal with that. So, see, I, I'm curious about that, Adam, because when I was at Pico, I saw that they've just got a fleet of Mitsui 8x18 grinders, CNC grinders. And I haven't, I haven't run one before, but they look like super capable machines. I don't know how they, you know, perform. How the, I don't know. Can you explain to me more about the issues with P- PC-based systems? Because in the future, I do plan on getting a, a new CNC grinder, but I think it'll be between a Parker and a Mitsui. Um, usually, my my trepidation with PC-based control systems comes from older metrology companies where you have a piece of equipment with zero wear, but it's been rendered obsolete by the computer that's attached to it. Uh, and like, a, you know, FANUC for all that's wrong with it, you can keep a 30 year old FANUC control running no issues uh, and parts are next day available. And um, same with Siemens or Heidenhein, you know, any of the big from, from a person who doesn't want to have to kind of, tinker around with computer components just wants his machines to run. I, I find value in a industrial control. Um, but you know, people I talk to that have a lot of computer background, they don't agree with that. They say, Oh no, no, you can always make computer run. You could do this and that. And it's like, yeah, I, I don't want to do that personally. I just want to make a phone call and have my machine running again. Right. I get that because I don't know. I, I think that you could probably buy a, a grinder for a one man shop and run it for the rest of your life. As long as the, uh, you know, as long as the control components hold up. Yeah. And, and that's could... kind of my thought here was this will get me probably to the end of my career. So. And I, I, one thing I could say about the Fanuc control, which you avoided uh, is that, I have the same control on the sharp. Mm-hmm. It's just bulletproof. Like the, yeah. it, it'll be running, you know, in a hundred years, the thing will be running. I, I have a Fanuc elsewhere in the shop. Um, I just didn't necessarily want it on the grinder um, because with grinding, it's a ton of setups. Like I recently did a part, there was 19 individual operations and, you know, each operation might take in 30 seconds is, grind this side, flip, grind this side. And so you're just doing a ton of operations, very, very brief programming. And I wanted the control that allows you to program the fastest. Uh, And Siemens has an ability to just really edit a program very quickly, like say a depth of cut or a step over amount, you can instantaneously change it. Um, And it's just a few more keystrokes on a FANUC, but a few more keystrokes, over a 19 operation project really starts to bug you. 
you know, on my mills, it's not a big problem because I might do one or two setups a day, but when you're doing a ton, it, it starts to add up. But on, on the mills also, you're probably starting infusion, right? Yeah. So I don't actually really do much of anything on the mills because uh, I have the work defined infusion. So it already knows I don't have to touch off the work. And basically I, I load the, the file over the FTP server. It knows what file folder to look in and I just have to hit cycle start. So mm. uh, the FANUC complaints I have aren't really valid there, but they would be on a grinder. Okay. And um, can you, do you have can cycles for doing like rotor, pin grinding and a spin fixture and uh, that kind of work on, on your Parker? You can use some of the plunge grinding cycles and then you could use some of the contour grinding cycles and just kind of give it like an XY profile and don't do any, or I'm sorry, a YZ profile and then don't mm -hmm. do any X stroke. Um, I do wish there was like a, a, a lathe canned cycle where you can tell it, you know, the pin size is this and peel off this much stock and you kind of, kind of how a lathe turns, turns a, a component shape. Um, but they also sell cylindrical grinders that have those cycles. And so I wonder if like, they don't want to, they don't want to make the basic surface grinder with a spin fixture compete against their cylindrical grinders. Um, maybe, maybe it's not that, but no. Is it something you could do in G code? Uh, you can absolutely do it in G code. You could do it from fusion um, with a lathe post, or you can also write your own can cycles with Siemens. That's another powerful possibility is you yeah. can, you can define your own can programs. So that's one thing that I wish I had on, on my control. I think I'm not able to save any programs or input G code, which is unfortunate, but it's a pretty capable machine. It'll, it'll work for me. Uh, you'll probably be able to do 99 and a half percent of everything you're imagining without it. Um, I was I was talking to Adam before we went live that um, I can write G code in my control to run the and, and I have to if I if I if the table is not oscillating, this is a downside of the Okamoto. If the if the table is not oscillating, this the only way I can get it to to do a thing is writing G code. There's no built-in can cycle for the table not moving, which is sort of a bummer. Um, and in fact, that's, you know, this pin project that I'm doing, uh, I'm going to be back to writing a little bit of G code. It's not a huge deal. It's going to be, you know, come down to here, go here, do that a couple of times and that's it. So it's not a lot of G code, but it would be super cool if it was built in, uh, to the control. And are you sure that, so there's no way to save anything on that, uh, on that control? Is that? That's what I read. Yeah. Haven't run yet, so I'm not 100% sure. Now, Pico was using it for roto grinding, and I got some um, work instructions from them on how to set it up that way. They they basically just would use a table stop and trick trick the machine by you know setting their right and left table stop um, in the program at the same time. And then they, I think, disconnect the the belt for the wheel, um, <laughs> or belt for the the reciprocation. Yeah. So 
have to experiment with that. Wow, that's a good experiment. I'm going to have to try that. Yeah. I don't think it'll let me get away with it, but we'll see. Because if it, if it did let me get away with it, I think I'd be a very happy camper. Um, and like I can always it, use it manually there, too. You know, I, I wouldn't want to do any reciprocating grinding manually because there's a clutch on the on the wheel or on the handle. But, you know, if I'm just manipulating Z and Y, that'd be easy enough. So I want to selfishly talk a little bit about pin grinding because I haven't done a lot of it and I want to get these things uh, done. Um, so my plan is to ta is to set up my uh, spin jig uh, parallel to the to the spindle. I was going to say the z-axis, but then I was going to get pushback from you you Parker majestic guys now uh, but, parallel to the to the spindle and then again just have have it come in now one of the one of the questions i have is i've got a uh you know i don't know 10 to 1 ratio pin hanging out there and and my assumption is is that i can my grinding will be a low enough pressure that i'm not going to really get any appreciable taper so I think you'll get some chatter yeah this minimum. is what i want i need to hear this um yeah, I you'll you'll get chatter, but the, also the weird thing is the amount of heat that the hip will hold. It doesn't have anywhere to dissipate other than down the shank, ah. and so as you're grinding, the, the the tip can really hold on to heat and do weird things to you. Um, so you have things like spring loaded steady rests that can push up under it, or like mm -hmm. a teeter totter or seesaw arrangement that you can have a weight you slide and it applies weight. Um, but that might be a good candidate for like a basic homemade centerless setup. Uh, so Robin had done a, a homemade centerless setup a while back. Um, so that's a possibility. Of course, I want I want to make sure that the cylinder, which is already uh, concentric with the head. Mm -hmm. um, I, actually, I shouldn't say that. The concentricity is not a big deal because it's all going to get machined. The head's going to get machined later. So, uh, Are there centers in it? Say again? Are, you, are there centers in it or are you doing it on your Suburban? So there's no centers in it. Uh, I could put, I could redo this and, and put, put a point on the end, which is a reverse center. Uh, and I have my little Harrig uh, electric spin that, that has those, you know, I could flip those guys around and pick up that point on this side. Uh, I have nothing. So I was thinking I could make a little, uh, cup with a center on it to hold it. Uh, that's another approach. And then I, then I'd be holding it between centers and do it a you different way. Do it one operation. The head and the shank. Are you grinding the heads too? No, the head. The head's a whole different problem. So when the head, the answer is yes. I'm going to grind the head, but it's not rotary ground. When when this when the shank is all done, and there's actually a, a two different diameters that are going to be on the shank. There's going to be a, a larger diameter and then a smaller diameter. Um, Kevin Blodgett says, "Does the centerless solve the heat issues?" In a lot of ways, yes, because it's kind of up against 
like a little shelf and it, it gives a opportunity for the coolant to kind of stay around the part longer. Um, so anytime your parts up in air and like you don't have the, the mass of the work holding kind of keeping the coolant concentrated around it, you see a little bit more heat issue. Uh, and so a pin just hanging out in space, uh, the coolant just like flows around it almost. And it, I, I feel like if, if you have some, some body around it for, for some more splashing, uh, it slows down the flow and keeps the coolant on the part longer. I kind of want to hear more about the centerless, you know, hack job that you're, um, and that's, I say that lovingly, uh, uh, improvisation, the centerless improvisation, uh, how to, how to do that. I mean, cause what I'm hearing from you is, a is almost like a little angle to hold the pin. Uh, Robin, I think used, uh, I think he used a couple of bearings. I'm not, I don't quite remember. How would you how would you set this up? Uh, I, from what I remember from Robin's video, he just had like a one two three block size piece of metal, and he cut like a sixty degree notch in it. And I think he had a piece of spring steel, maybe yeah. holding it yeah. in. Um, but then you need some way to drive it rotationally. That's not mm -hmm. going to influence it much. Um, so I think he had like a. a hex head bolt he put into a thread or something that's and exactly used right. a pistol drill to drive it but uh i don't know i don't know what your options there would be but sometimes with parts when you're prepping them for heat treat and grind um what we used to do a lot when we made pins is we double end them so you'd have two parts joined at the head maybe like a little notch and so when you're done you could slice them on an abrasive cutoff wheel and just kind of clean the top up but you grab on to the part you're not grinding. Like, you know, say it's just like a straight shank. You stick that in your collet and then you can, you can grind the head and the, the pin of the other side of the two part assembly, uh, continuously. Yep. That would have been, that would have been brilliant. I just left myself enough, which I thought was enough to grab, to grab in a collet. Um, yeah, that's, that's not a lot to grab onto, but I think, mm. I mean, there's a lot of good options or maybe not great options, but I think a little steady rest is something you could build in a very short amount of time. And mm -hmm. it's something that'll come in handy. I've posted some of the one that, that I made on Instagram, but it's just, it's just a little simple thing. That's got like almost like a pen, pen spring. Mm-hmm holding a QB pin in a block and it just has the tiniest, tiniest bit of give. Okay. And then you would, uh, how, how would you choose the amount of spring tension? Just measure the pin. It's pushing up. You're getting too much tension. Yeah. Like if you're, yeah. you're getting taper. So, so set it by taper basically. Okay. What I would do is I would set it up and I would put my indicator on the top of the pin and I would, I would get it to where it just barely uh, pushed up a little bit, and that would be my starting point. So, you know, pushing then, up a tenth or less, and then start there. And you know, my little box of all the—I've got springs that have been cut to all different lengths for, for different amounts of pressure, and I've got the heads of the pins. I've got you know, I've got flat ones. I've got plastic tipped ones. And I've got somewhere I've got a little VM, but I think, you know, the plastic, 
plastic tip ones where you just use like uh, an Enmo container to cover it. That seems to be the most useful. I missed a word there. A what container? Like an Enmo container, you know, the tubes that they ah, come in? Yes. You just cut the end off the tube and you put that over the, the pin so you don't have metal, metal on metal. And it just slides a little better. Maybe this is an application for a 3D printed widget and use the plastic of the 3D printed widget. There you go. I'm seeing it. I see the light. Okay. (laughs) May have to go make something. Uh, Well, I'll probably do it wrong first, right? I'll, I'll, I'll set it up and let it chatter at me and then we'll, we'll fix it. Um, Sometimes you get away with it. So, I, I wouldn't mind getting away with it. <laughs> uh, plus, I I do have wheel speed control, so if some if if I can tune it in and maybe change the wheel speed to make a you know to calm it down, is that a reasonable approach? Maybe. I don't know. I I've, I've always had the equipment I needed, like a steady rest or you know some kind of other method of doing it. So like if it looked sketchy, I just wouldn't go down that path yeah but nothing bad's gonna happen you'll just kind of you know you might experience some chatter or burning and um Mm. but you live you learn so we have some questions uh every time you change your speed you gotta redress your wheel and so you'll probably spend a little back and forth time doing that so i see the rabbit hole you just pointed at and i don't want to go down it right now because it'll it's a day's worth of discussion. Uh, theoretically, you shouldn't have to redress the wheel if you just merely change the speed. But I recognize that. What's that? I'm curious what Adam thinks. I'm I'm big fan of wheels need to be dressed to the speed they're running. Okay. Um, because especially with like a heavier mass wheel, like a super abrasive as if the speed goes up the amount of eccentricity is going to increase uh potentially um and so i just i've always redressed if i change speed but with the cnc it's as simple as hitting a button so it's right not a big deal so all of that the the 800 pound gorilla in the room is that that exists because of some mass imbalance you have to have an imbalance for that to be true right Yes, and you always will have an imbalance. There is always an imbalance. Just a factor of how much. Right. Okay. We're in violent agreement. <laughs> uh, K-Bonk says, is there a preferred feed direction from head to tip versus tip to head? Question mark. Yeah, I I think that, that a lot of that depends on if you need to have a really sharp corner or not. So what I'll usually do is... Um, I'll feed in on the head and then feed off the part. Now, um, I suppose you can go the other way, but the problem is that you're getting your wear on the front edge of the wheel. And so when you come up to that corner, you're going to have more, more of a radius, but it probably doesn't matter in this situation. Uh, actually I, we're going to have a defined radius. So I'm going to be dressing the radius onto the wheel. Uh, another thing you could try, Spencer, is to make dress a little step 
and to make your wheel narrower, like maybe just have a hundred thou past that radius. So you're, so the amount of wheel engaging with the parts reduced and that'll help with your deflection and heat. I like that. Yeah. That's, a, that's very good. That's an excellent idea. I, I have a lot of dressing uh, options on that machine also, and I'm sure I can figure out a way to tell it to make that, you know, make that shape on the wheel. I don't think that's a problem. Um, so a lot of times I don't even mess with that. I'll just use a piece of Norbide and kind of touch the wheel and knock a few tents off. And uh, then Call when I'm done, day. it dresses away. But That would be the expedient way, but <laughs> it's not nearly nerdy enough. What kind of radius do you need? Uh, I think it's going to be a 30,000th type, maybe even less. Uh, I The answer is I don't know, but I'll... Meh. Even less. It may be a ten thousandth radius. So if it's ten thousandths, you know, that should that that radius will form itself while you're yeah. trying. Yeah. Uh Greenwood says, I like head to tip. I'm not I'm not judging. Uh <laughs> helps control diameter as your wheel breaks down. Okay. K Bonk says with coolant flow, question mark, in 3D gizmo? Ooh. So I think what he's implying uh, is that some coolant flow trickery can be done if I 3D print a little support widget. Make a little gutter that goes under it. Or I can have little, little mini nozzles that yeah. point at it, right? That come out, that come out of the 3D printed thing? This we'll is figure kind something of the application out. where... You know, I want to have a separate coolant supply that I can just position wherever I want. Yeah. Because I did set it up so that it kept kept the pin cool. And instead of having it, you know, where you can, you can never quite get it just right when you're, when you're setting up to grind a pen. You usually have it <clears throat> one side of the wheel or the other. I feel like you don't get, you don't get it where you need uh, Indiana John. In, in a state of shock, says, I've never heard of redressing four different speeds. Stick around, Indiana John. This is where you learn these things, okay? I learned it too today, so that's good. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I, I will report back to the group uh, how I do here. Um, you know, I, if I could make 10 of these pins, uh, I'm going to have a very happy team that's going to be all set for a while. Um, this, is, this is what you need for those. Whoa. This is the latest, uh, latest oh. edition by Shub. That looks like money. <laughs> <laughs> that looks pretty cool. So is that that a um, for the rotary uh, for the spin it's jig? A, Where does that go? It, it, it goes on. It'll go on my new bald spinner. So you take the V block off and you put the chuck on yep. and you indicate it in. And it repeats really well. Um, you know, the only, I had planned on getting a smaller one, but the only issue is you have to have like a full eight inch wheel to. To reach down there. Yeah. Hey, the, you know. Smaller uh, ones are like an inch smaller in diameter. I, I live not too super far from Herman Schmidt and I know they changed hands recently. Apparently 
it went, it appears to have gone very well as far as keeping the culture. Yeah. Um, but wouldn't that be cool to go down there and do a little thing with them and learn, you know, learn something from those guys. So if anybody knows anybody down at Herman Schmidt, uh, I'm not mm-hmm. adverse to just picking up the phone, but let me know. That'd be kind of cool. I'd love to meet the, the kids that are that I'm putting through college. <laughs> That's that hits a little too close to home. Uh, uh, Robert Simpson asks: Is there a short explanation for dressing for different speeds? Not a grinder hand, so no idea. Uh, let me take a shot at it, guys, and then you could you could yell at me. Um, a, a grinding wheel needs to be balanced. Uh, if you have a grinding wheel where its center of mass does not correspond with the center of rotation, then it's going to act like a uh, a pendulum, and as it goes as it goes around, it, it's going to yank on the spindle, which is going to bend like a piece of pasta or rubber. If you're Robin says rubber, I say pasta, um, and you're going to get wheel hop. So you come in with your dresser and you dress the wheel and the theory is that the hop from the imbalance is going to be compensated by the dress, which is true until the wheel gets loaded. That's my commentary, not the physics. Um, until the wheel starts having to do work and then things get wonky. So, so uh, if you... Spin the wheel up. You've appar- you've dressed it already, right? You got a B two hundred balancing ring, uh, uh, right? Uh, or you have a hub that has your little three weights built in, whatever. But you've balanced the hell out of it. You dress it, and now you go to town. If you change the speed, then the the amount that the spindle's bending due to the ever present imbalance is going to change. And it's you're no longer going to have a smooth cut without wheel hop. Did I catch that? Yep. Yeah. You, can so, you may you may not notice that on like sixty or 46, 46 grit wheels, but like you get into a finer finish grinding, um, you might not even notice it visually until you stone it, and you'll see kind of straight lines, picket fencing down the part. There, there's a guy that just bought a set of stones for me who, without prompting, just did a did like a unboxing video and then showed people how to use it. And I had a, I just watched it. It was really nice. It was wonderful. But I had to start laughing because he goes over to his new mill and he says, there's a, there's a ding here and I'm going to use these. And he does the right thing and he goes over and he says, I could feel it and it just cleaned up and it cleaned up and he takes the stone away and because I'm tuned into it, I immediately see wheel hop on the on the on the mill table, and then he wipes it away with his hand. But it's like, no, that was still hopping hopping right along. Um, so uh, yeah, we we you're saying we don't see it on some of the rougher uh, grit wheels. Um, Kevin Bodger says this is a fantastic discussion. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, we got that. Practical Renaissance says, I would love to see us tour of them. So would I. I think we're going to have to make this happen. Uh, how much benefit do you get from dynamically balancing wheels? So that's a super good question. 
when you and I'll, I'll take a shot at this and we'll go around the round table here uh well no actually i'm just going to shoot it over to adam adam dynamic balancing versus static balancing go i like the idea of dynamic balancing you're you're not leaving anything to chance like say the spindle has an effect on the balance of the wheel uh or as you're using the wheel maybe the balance is changing coolant gets in there so doing it at the machine i like a lot um but i've also known like the the big system in that arena is the marpos system and i've known a lot of people who just kind of find them frustrating to use um mm. uh, like they're effective but they they all seem to kind of curse when talking about them um but i mean there is an, another system i can't remember the name of it but it uh it fires on cue and actually like chips material out of the wheel really yeah and uh that one's pretty cool and you don't need any balancing rings or anything like that and uh so i i think that's kind of interesting do not like it you don't need balancing rings i do not like it uh do you have any experience uh aaron with these dynamic balancing systems no i don't in fact the only time i balance wheels are you know the the big ones for the big okamoto 12 by 24s i'll balance those but uh, the wheels that i put on like uh Room conjures. I don't. I don't balance at all. I. I haven't really experienced it as a as a problem. And when I do, it's a problem that I can usually solve by dressing the sides of the wheel. Now, um, I can definitely see the application in super abrasives, though. Yeah, super abrasives. It's a. It's more of a need. Like personally, I don't bother with balancing on for what I do. Like most of my seven inch conventional abrasive wheels um, but super abrasive you're going at much higher surface feet uh, or spin, uh, cutting footage and you're, you're also more mass at the periphery of that mm. wheel um, and so any imbalance is going to become much bigger issue at those higher speeds than it would in a sand wheel one of the things i like about uh the idea of dynamic dynamic balancing of course i ha i don't have a, a system for doing that is that it's also going to balance the motor you know you have mm. all these other variables that that are downstream or upstream from your from your cutting surface that you have no control over you know we all assume that our motors are balanced and if they're not and of course they're not <laughs> there's going to be something introduced by the motor and the theory is is that dressing it again will take it out, but um, uh, who knows? Uh, there, there is an interesting problem when you're doing cylindrical grinding and you have a little bit of wheel imbalance. Is that every every so often your your wheels rotation and your parts rotation become an integer of one another? Uh, yeah, and you get a cog pattern. Yep. Like, you know, micro-inch cog pattern, but a cog oh. pattern nonetheless. And so the, the solution is usually just bump your workhead speed a little one way or the other and break the break the pattern. I I uh, I think a lot about these things, mostly because I'm a, too much of a nerd, but uh, it would be... I know that Haas and some of their lathes has started to, like, have a mode where it'll, it'll move the RPM around. Um... It would be kind of cool for some tools like that, uh, especially if you're trying to 
get right down to the perfect finish. Um, I have a question for you, Adam. Um, you said seven inch wheels. You're not running eight inch wheels. No, no, I run seven. Uh, you can order an eight inch kit with Parker's. Um, it's just, just a bigger wheel guard. Um, but it's just a standard non-keyed Sopco 200 hub. And I feel like at eight inch, you're kind of, you're, you're getting up into the potential of spinning that without any kind of keyed feature on the hub. So seven inch works fine for what I do. And, and, and I have a mix. I have eight inches and seven inches. The, the diamond wheels are sevens, seven and a halfs or sevens. I don't remember. And then, uh, I did buy some SG fives that are eight. Um, just, just cause, uh, K bonk is pointing at Clo 42, which is C L A U G H 42. I think, uh, he just built, we, we, we texted about this this week. He built an RC prop balancer, uh, or he used an RC prop balancer to do a wheel balancing. And he also, uh, just made his own 3d printed bearing based balancing stand that looked really nice um mark mark makes has a micromaster he's got to get back together yes you do widget work says i ran a studer cylindrical grinder with a balancer system that removes bits of the wheel it it worked great and it was fast and simple fascinating so here's a fun fact that when the accelerometer senses the the motion of the wheel, that the actual imbalance is ninety degrees away. Think about that. Oh, that's in a physics textbook somewhere. That's how helicopters work. Also, uh, well, super cool. I I want to go nerd out. I want to go grind my pins now. Uh, well, congratulations. Wheel balance and eccentricity. Um, that's one of my concerns with top-mounted dressing. You ever seen like a top-mounted slide dresser? Everything has to be exceptionally good for them to work well. And mm. they do when everything's very good. But when when the errors start to build up, mm -hmm. uh, may, maybe you have a little bit of taper in the, the travel of that. And then maybe your wheel has a little bit of imbalance. And uh, I, I just find it a little bit harder to get the results you can get with one of those then versus a table mounted dresser. I, I've, I've experienced that too. Because That's you're, you're dressing out a phase. So, you know, whatever amount of eccentricity you have is now on the bottom, but it's not running out at the top. Right. So with Opti dresses, I, I use them a lot for uh, dressing form wheels, but I never use it for dressing a wheel flat unless Unless I just have to, because it never seems to be, you know, flat to my work. It's always out a little bit. Well, I don't have experience. I don't have any experience with the uh, top wheel dressers, but I never liked the idea of them because they're because they're so disconnected from the part or from the they table. They sound great. <laughs> I, I well, just like them from a thermal control perspective. Um, the mm. column on a grinder will change in temperature, you know, throughout my day. Um, but when you come down and dress within an inch or two of your top of your workpiece, you're basically calibrating that 
temperature shift on your column and ball screw out of the equation. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not the case with the top mounted one. The dresser is riding up with the growing column. Um, so I, I just, there's some serious production advantages on bigger grinders. Um, but for small grinding, it seems like table mounting is the way to go. Cool. So much to learn. It's amazing. Uh, just today, problem. say again. I said, I actually have two little things that I'd like to uh, bring up while we're doing this. I don't know if we're quitting in an hour, but just save some time for that. Go, go ahead. Uh, bring them up now. Uh, we're, okay. Nominally, we, we, we're, we're close to quitting time, but if we go another hour, nobody's going to complain. <laughs> All right. So there, the two things are, I need to pick a, a chuck for my grinder. And then I also wanted to hear Adam's experience about some of the different, uh, the different hubs that Sopco makes for uh, ID grinding or for one I need now is something that'll hold a small cup wheel. And I find that my hubs are, are too big for that. So I didn't see anything on McMaster. Um, so I guess we could start with uh, with the hub. What what kind of uh, hub do you use for that? Because I don't think the Sopco 200 works for those four or five inch cup wheels, right? That's a Sopco 200 on a three inch wheel. Really? You have to add an aluminum spacer to get it to sit out far enough, but it clears uh -huh. the hub. But uh, yeah, that's as small as I go with this. Um, for my like bigger roughing wheels, they make a, I forget the number, but the flange is bigger by like mm -hmm. a half an inch. Mm -hmm. And I like that just because it kind of looks a little stouter, <laughs> but it, it covers the wheel number. So you gotta like kind of write oh, on the wheel what it is. I, I've, I've gotten in the habit of doing that all the time. Kind of taste the wheel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what I've been doing? I've been taking a, uh, a Sharpie. And then I, you know, the, you know, the dot peen, uh, markers, mm. you know, I've been doing, I've been doing like a dot peen marking on the wheel with a Sharpie, uh, and, and that lasts a long time and it takes away the, the mystery. Some people like the mystery. You know, I always not... <laughs> Most of the time I could look like, I know I use pretty standardized wheels. So I know like, oh, that's a 38, but, and I, I can tell that's either a 60, no, that's an 80. But I run different bonds, and mm. so that's where I get into trouble. Like, I need to know that. Yeah, I really wish the manufacturers would put it on the outer edge of their label. <laughs> but that's maybe too much to hope. Um, did you have another thing, Aaron, that you want to bring up? Yeah, I, I have to decide what kind of uh, chalk I'm going to get. Oh, so... I have had used walkers go through my hands, right? That was on the, uh, in fact, every every chuck I had until the Okamoto was a walker. Um, also a Massachusetts-based company. They're, they're down in, uh, uh, they, or they were down in the Worcester, Massachusetts area. Um, and now I've got the Okamoto brand. You know, it's who knows where they source it from. And it's fine. It's not like glorious, but I'd like to hear what Adam has to has to say. I was kind of talking with Stefan. What I 
kind of wish I would have done is bought like four, four or three four inch chucks and just had three four inch chucks and you can turn on zones. Like if you have a U-shaped part, just turn on the center one. Wow, that's um, that's and a good I, idea. You know, it, it's going to be more expensive than buying one 12 inch chuck. But, uh, you know, as, as I do this longer, I, I see some versatility in being able to control individual zones. But uh, I, on the new CNC grinder, I had it uh, come with a Walker chuck and it's the new build of, of Walker. And I don't feel like they're quite as nice as the old ones, like flipping it oh. on. It's not quite as smooth. Hmm. Um, but I mean, the pull construction is still the same spacing. So I, I feel like it holds every bit as well. So no complaints there. What if, what if we convince the manufacturers to make a, you know, eight by 18 or six by 12, whatever your size is, but give you four electrical inputs mm. so that you can go and control the zones. But it's still one chuck, right? Yeah. You still, you, you treat it as one. Uh, that way, because the grinders aren't going to be set up to hold four things um, easily. But you can get the chuck manufacturers to just say, hey, listen, guys, just put four windings in it and, you know, let me let me mess around with with the current. That's the other thing, though. I'm not sure if I'm I'm not sure about getting an electromagnetic chuck, just because I've I've seen some problems with them uh, and the controls failing. Uh, so I feel like if I were to do that, I'd want to get a new one, not a used one. And you know, it's pretty expensive. <laughs> not sure. Well, I I have I have vast experience with one electromagnetic chuck, <laughs> yeah. and it's been it's been awesome. Although. I can feel the heat yeah, and that's, you know, it gives one pause to think about the heat. Um, one thing I, so a lot in milling, we use these, uh, they're electro permanent magnets. So the electric just turns it on and off. Yeah. Um, they're low heat as a result when in use, but you can also move the poles around. They have like pole spacer standoffs. Hmm. Um, and I always thought if they made them small enough, that'd be nice on a tool room grinder. But I think like the smallest I've ever seen is 12 by 12. But yeah. like from a grinding plates perspective, you could just put like three poles on it. And then they have these spring loaded transfer poles that don't distort the plate. They just transfer magnetism up to it. Hmm. And you put those in like the three opposite locations. Hmm. Um, and I always thought that'd be kind of kind of a neat approach. But uh, yeah, sadly, I've never seen one quite set up for surface grinding. Interesting. How do you like having that 12 inch chuck versus um a longer one versus the 18 that it was made for oh I, I i like having that a lot just because it gives me kind of some room out on the end i can hang like an l-shaped part i i see an unfortunate amount of tetris pieces uh that come from my shop and yeah sometimes you want to be able to hang something down and get that extra couple inches and uh, to drop it down in that dead space between the, the chuck and the dresser is handy. Yeah. I always uh, felt like they shortchanged the, the X travel on grinders. Like the fact that you can only go like an inch or inch and a half off of each side. It'd be nice to have a couple inches either way. What's really nice is when a grinder comes off the front of the chuck, like another inch and Parker's generally, you can get at least three quarters of an inch. Yeah. Uh, so if you have like a real tall pin, you can hang it off the front of the magnet uh, and gain yourself a few more inches. 
And I, I would vote for a magnet the size of a surfboard, but that's just me. And shape. What's that? And shape. Oh, yeah. Well, the shape, I don't know. And so on, I my, a, my next I machine, I'll probably just put a, a Roa chuck on it. Really? And, yeah. Just not deal with the magnet when I'm not using it. Yeah, that's it, what they were telling me at Pico. Their, their work holding solution is Loctite 425. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. No magnet, no heat, no nothing. You guys want to hear about a near crash I had on a grinder? <laughs> uh, let's pull down the cone of silence. It's just us three. Nobody else will hear. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just got a new job. And, uh, you know, my, my grinding experience was kind of my selling point because that's you know, I spent, that's where I spent all my time parked in front of a grinder. And so I went, I was going to regrind the chuck on their Okamoto 12 by 24. And so I, I moved the stops to both ends and I set about grinding it. And as soon as it went off the far side of the chuck, all of a sudden it just started grinding the back, the back rail. And of course you could hear it just anywhere in the shop but probably anywhere in the molding section as well and i'm like fuck how did i how did i crash this thing why why is it why aren't the stops like keeping it from hitting the back wall and uh so i'm like i i gotta figure out what's going on here they're gonna think i'm an idiot <laughs> and uh anyway it turns out that when somebody took the machine apart and put it back together there's this back rail for the splash guard and it's formed so that it goes backwards and then up to give clearance. Well, when somebody installed it, it <laughs> they turned it around. So oh. it came out this way and came up. And I crashed the side of the wheel right into that thing. Oh. Well, it wasn't your fault. Well, it goes, you know, goes to show <laughs> when you're on a new machine, you have to be yeah. extra diligent. I would say that, you know. It's it's a preventable <laughs> it's a preventable accident, but I think in the future I'll just make sure to run the run it manually back to front, make sure everything's clear. Well, that's a good part of the lesson is is check your extremes, right? Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm glad it wasn't more serious. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was. Uh, it was a bit humiliating until I figured out what it was. Were you able to keep using that wheel? Yeah. Okay. And the underwear? The underwear was okay? Sheet metal was no match for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just imagining the sheet metal that was on the MicroMaster. You, you could have built a bridge out of that stuff. Um, yeah. Not this stuff. Well, guys, uh, we're, we did it. Um, we went uh, comfortably over time, which is uh, fine. Uh, last call for questions from the audience. Uh, otherwise, we're going to wrap this wrap this up so we can all go outside and stare at the sun. Uh, anybody have any questions? And uh, Mr. Blodgett reminds me to remind you, don't forget to depress the vertically oriented opposable digit button. Do you know what that means? Yes, you do. Thumbs up. Give the video a thumbs up. Uh <laughs> Box the controls is what you is what it's called when you do that with a plane. Very good, Indiana John. Nice use. Uh, he is correct, and we are in violent agreement because we're both pilots. When you take the stick in an airplane and you you 
run it all the way around to its extremes. That's called boxing the controls. And uh, that's what he is suggesting we do with the machine. That's kind of shockingly good idea for a machinist. That's pretty good. We will keep that in mind. All right. Well, uh, going to wait another uh, 20 seconds here. Thanks, guys. Aaron, Adam, I uh, appreciate it. Next week, all our guests will have bees in their name. <laughs> and I hope you'll come back and uh, and share some more wisdom with us. I think you need a beard next time. I think I'm the one, I'm the odd man out on that. Yep. Actually, at last week I was getting close, but I gave up. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, everybody, thanks for being here. Appreciate you. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. I don't know what we're going to do, but it'll be awesome. And uh, we'll keep the grinder action up. Keep posting on Instagram and share. I will. I will continue sharing my story of these here pins which uh, are getting more interestinger and interestinger, and that will also become a video, including all of the lessons. Adam Demuth, thank you very much. Aaron Wallace, thank you very much. And we'll see you guys next week, next Sunday. Be awesome. Happy Sunday.